Let's go to Judges chapter 6. Starting in verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers accounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But the Lord has forsaken us. And given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you. And you shall strike the Midianites as if they were a single man. And he said to him, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart here from, until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay till you return. Verse 19. So Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes and an ephah of flour. That's a lot of flour. The meat he put in a basket and the broth he put in a pot and brought them to him under the terebinth and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes, and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord, and Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. The Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear, you shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day it still stands at Ophrah, with, which belongs to the Abiezrites. Stop there. Father, help us this morning as we consider these words, your word, and the words that you would speak to us this morning, I pray that you would help us to have hearts and minds that are, are soft, open, uh, ready to receive from you this morning um, as individuals and as us as a church family, or that we would grow together. In Jesus' name, amen. We're looking at Jehovah Shalom, the Lord my peace. The Lord God, my peace, this morning. The context of the story, if we were to back up, we would read how 
Israel has now been living under severe oppression under the Midianites, hostile neighboring tribe that has come in and begun to take over. At this point in the story, Israel, the people of God, have been going up and down and up and down. They've had some good seasons. They had a good 40-year run when the prophetess Deborah was judging, leading in Israel. But then they turned once again to worship the gods of that land that they were dwelling in. And God judged them. And for seven years, it says that the Lord handed Israel over to the Midianites. And the Midianites oppressed them so severely that the Israelites ended up having to live in caves. They ran for the mountains and they were literally living in holes in the ground. It said every time the Israelites would come out and attempt to plant some crops just to survive, just to get by, the Midianites and the Amorites and some of the other neighboring uh, tribes would come and just utterly consume the people like locusts consuming the harvest. It says that you couldn't even number them. This is a, a radically oppressive situation. And then, as always, God's people cry out. God is so unfathomably gracious, patient. What does he do? He responds. He comes to lead his people, to deliver them, to rescue them once again. He sends a prophet, as is his normal uh, protocol. Before he begins to act, he wants the people to be reminded of how they got there in the first place. And so he sends the prophet, and the prophet says, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up out of Egypt. I brought you out of the house of slavery. I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed me. That's the context of the story. Everything's gone wrong again. But God graciously responds to the prayers of his people and begins to intervene. This is the story of God coming to rescue an entire nation, intervening in a, in a, in a system of gross injustice, oppression. Because not only was Israel suffering the consequences of their own rebellion, but now it had gotten to the point to where they were literally as bad off as they ever were. They're living as slaves once again. Utter oppression. It had, it had become systemic to use the popular word. Which I think is the right word for it. And God comes to rescue the nation. So it's the story of God delivering a nation, his people, once again. But it's also the story, as we just read, of God entering into the life of a young man, an individual named Gideon. The story begins in the life of a young man and his deliverance from a life-dominated 
by fear. He was in a wine press threshing out the wheat. Now, most of us, I don't think, have probably threshed wheat lately, but apparently the way it's done is you get the wheat and you kind of toss it up in the air and the breeze will come by and blow out all the chaff and then you're left with the kernels of wheat, which you can use to crush and, and make grain and bread and whatnot or something like that. But because he was living in fear of the Midianites and the Amorites and, and all of these other hostile, violent nations, he had to do his business down in this vat, like this underground area. I didn't even know how that would have worked. He would have to toss it like kind of way up, hope that the wind kind of blows some of the chaff. And it's a pretty sad, kind of pathetic situation. But he's clearly living, crippled by fear. And God starts right there. Could you imagine living in a world without fear? Let's just, let's just ponder that for a second. Particularly in the light of like this past year, a life, the world now, it just seems like fear is rife. It's everywhere. Not that it hasn't always been, but it's just, it's, it's next level. First John 4.18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. What does this even mean? Oh, I love the verse. I love the promise. How does it, act, how does it actually work? How does God's perfect love drive out fear in an individual's heart? And even in the heart of an entire people group. This story answers that question. First the Lord shows up in the midst of an utterly hopeless situation. Begins making incredible pronouncements and promises. This is where the journey begins. God working in the heart of one man, delivering him from fear, begins by God showing up while he's threshing wheat in the wine press, feeling about this big, afraid for his life, and God shows up and he says, Greetings, O mighty man of valor. The Lord is with you. It's just like God. Classic God. Showing up in the middle of a dark, broken place, giving his opinion on the situation. Let me tell you what's really going on. Let me tell you what I see. Let me tell you how I view the situation. You're terrified? For the last, what, seven years? Seven years is a good chunk of time, particularly if you're a young person. It could be like a third Maybe half of your life for as long as you can remember. Let's put it this way. For Gideon's entire adult life, I think that's fair to say, all he's known is fear. This is the way it is. I've heard the stories and I can even vaguely remember a time when we weren't being oppressed. But seven years, this is now the new normal. 
fear. Hiding for fear of life. Having to do my business underground. Not like do your business, it sounds weird. And God shows up. Let me tell you what's really going on. Let me tell you how I see this playing out. This is what God does. For the last seven years, you have been told that this is the way it is. You're stupid, you're ugly, nothing's ever going to change, no one loves you, you're always going to be rejected. Fear is the status quo. Don't let anyone tell you different. And then God shows up and he says, I'll tell you what's really going on. You're strong. You are loved. You do belong. I have a plan. It's not too far gone. Trust me when I say that I'm with you. Now let's go to battle. And Gideon's like, please, sir, what are you saying? Are you unaware of the situation? And unfortunately, but naturally, he doesn't believe this angel of the Lord what theologians call a theophany God appearing in some sort of a human form presumably beginning to interact with other humans naturally and he's like no I don't believe you they do this three times I'm telling you you're strong you're mighty you're a mighty man of valor the Lord is with you now I want you to go and set my people free once again. I would say, in terms of uh, the beginning of the story, this is the beginning of faith. God showing up and beginning to, to make pronouncements, remind this man of his promises, and he challenges Gideon to believe him. And he is so unfathomably patient. Three times they go back and forth until finally Gideon says, okay, okay, okay. I've, I got it, I got to get it. I'm going to bring you an offering. I'm going to go prepare a meal. And he must have been gone for a long time. Uh, what did it say? An ephah, a flour? That's like 10 gallons of flour. It's like, a, I don't know how many cakes he made, but you think that perhaps he was stalling just a little bit. And the broth and the meat and all of this stuff. And he puts it on the rock. And it's like a scene out of, like last week. It's like Moses all over again. With a bit of Elijah mixed in. And the angel of the Lord takes the staff and he touches the offering on the rock. And it's consumed by fire. And then in a moment, Gideon knows, okay, this is the real deal. This is the Lord. Suddenly, Gideon realizes, get this, suddenly Gideon realizes that he has a much bigger problem than the Midianites. This, is, this, is, this isn't really where one might expect the story to go. But in verse 12, sorry, verse 22... Gideon responds in the moment by saying, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. Face to face. Exodus 33, 20 says, The Lord said, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. 
So you've got to kind of get into the language here, the nuance, that word alas, it's the Hebrew word aha. It's actually a, it's an exclamation of terror. All of a sudden Gideon realizes, oh my God, I am now interacting with the Lord. I'm going to die. That, that's, that's what's going to happen next. He's terrified. He's experiencing fear. He realizes that in that moment, he has a much bigger problem than the Midianites. He is in the presence of holy God. And he's terrified. The Lord, Lord says in verse 23, peace, peace be with you. That's Jesus right there. Peace, you're not going to die. I'm with you. I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites, but Israel disobeyed. That's what the prophet, the prophet said. I rescued you. I brought you into the land that I promised your fathers. And I commanded you, do not fear other gods. But what did they do? What did they do? What was the situation for seven years? They were hiding. Why? Because they had begun to fear other gods. What does that even mean? What does it mean to fear another god? What does it mean to fear the Lord our God, Yahweh, Jehovah? Why does God want us to fear him? Why is it important at that point in the story for Gideon to realize that he is in the presence of God, holy God, and the natural, logical, appropriate response is abject terror? Why? Because God wants to remind him that if you're going to fear anyone or anything, fear me and me alone. These Amorites, these Midianites, these other gods, they're nothing. They're fakes. They're foolish. They have no authority. You've been fearing them. I know you've been fearing them because you've been worshiping them. Do you know that you will worship who you fear? You will worship the God you fear the most. If you're afraid that Baal, who's the Lord of the harvest, that pagan Canaanite God, if you believe that Baal has the power to bring rain and produce fertile crops, then you're going to do everything you can to please that God, which is the situation Israel had gotten themselves in. They were trying to stay alive, and so they began to, on the side, appease the other, the other gods. Excuse me. Until the Lord God, the Redeemer God, the rescuer God, the creator God, the one true God arrives on the scene once again. He says, don't fear those gods. Stop worshiping those gods. Stop putting your trust in those gods. It's only led you to crippling fear. Fear me and me alone. And here's the good news. Here's the good news. In that moment, God didn't smite Gideon. He didn't crush him into oblivion. 
He didn't stand over him as the little man cowered in terror. He said, no, I'm here because I love you. I'm with you. I've heard the cries of my people once again, and I am telling you, you are a mighty man of valor. I'm with you. Now let's go work together. Peace be with you. The beginning of holy fear. First faith, come to me, trust me, listen to me, believe me when I say, remember who's really in charge here. Remember who has all authority. Remember the only God really worth fearing is the one who truly has all of the power in the universe. The beginning of peace, the beginning of wisdom, the beginning of perfect love. See, the fear of God and the love of God are not mutually exclusive categories, ever. The fear of God is to simply recognize that Papa be big. Our God is holy. Oh, you don't mess with God's kids. <laughs> you don't mess with God's kids. You don't mess with Mama Bear's cub. Lest you experience the wrath of your maker. Now, we could just stop there. That's pretty good, yeah? But there's another part of the story. Um, there's actually three more verses that I'd like us to read. And this is the part which I'm most excited about. Let's go back to um, verse 25. I want to take just a few more minutes. It says in verse 25, That night the Lord said to Gideon, Take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asherah that is beside it and build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold here. Stones laid in due order, etc., etc. Gideon obeys in verse 27. It says, so Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him, but because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. So, question. When God begins speaking to the Gideons in this house, what kind of family will we be in that moment? After this incredible encounter, Seems like it was like an all-day event. Met him under the tree, had the conversation with him, said some incredible things about him to him, went to get the sacrifice, came back. All this was going on, finally realized that he's actually in the presence of holy God, and yet God says, peace. And he says, you are Jehovah Shalom, and he experiences peace in that same moment, he realizes the fear of God. He experiences the peace of God because he's no longer afraid of his enemies. Peace has come. Awesome. 
what next? God says, okay, now I want you to go tear down the idol of your father. And so he does it, but he has to do it in the dark. He goes, but he has to do it at night because he's afraid what his family and his peers might say or think or do to him. And there's certainly a, a, there's an obvious sort of application, but there's a, an incredible secondary principle that I want us to zoom in on now as a church family. When God begins to speak to the Gideons in our church family, what kind of family will we be then? Will we be the kind of church family that says it's so awesome that God is doing something in your heart. It's so awesome that you're, you're experiencing freedom. It's so awesome that you're growing in the fear of the Lord. But whatever he tells you to do next, make sure you do it when we're not around. Isn't that something? That after all of that, God says go down, tear down the altar of Baal, the idol of your family. And he does it, but he won't do it in the daylight. 1 John 1, 7 says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. How easy is it to talk about living free from fear while simultaneously propagating an even deeper fear within our own family? Who will the sons and daughters in this house go to when they begin discerning idol worship in this family? Did you know that quote-unquote idolatry, worshiping other things, worshiping comfort, worshiping, worshiping materialism, worshiping your political uh, leaders, worshiping yourself, worshiping and we could go on and on and on. You know it all exists in the church these days. Have you encountered this? Amen or oh my. And then God begins to speak to an individual and says, I want you to arise. I want you to begin to address the idols in your family. I want you to begin to uh, have conversations with those around you about the things that you're seeing. The idolatry, the injustice, the selfishness, the fear. But will we be the kind of family that welcomes those difficult moments, those confrontational moments, those awkward moments, those moments where typically we might get really defensive and want to deflect or project or just simply withdraw? Or will we be the kind of family that welcomes it and says, you don't have to hide. Son, you don't have to hide that from me. Dad, can I talk to you about our family's idolatry problem? Dad, can I talk to you about my porn problem? Dad, can I have a conversation with you about, I've been feeling, what do they call it? Gender dysphoria. 
Dad, can I talk to you about some of my political convictions and how they've been changing and how I perceive them to align or misalign with what I'm seeing in the church, our church, the church abroad today? Dad, can I talk to you about the way you've been treating mom lately? Dad, can I talk to you about the, the thing, the addiction, the abuse, the hypocrisy? Can I talk to you about these things that I'm seeing that the Lord is addressing in my own heart? What if I were to come to you and say, Dad, I've been really struggling with this. Will you be the kind of father or the mother or the brother or the sister that says, we don't talk about that in this family. Take it to the fill in the blank. Take it to the liberals. We don't talk about these things. What if I was to come to you and say, Dad, I, I have a conviction I put a BLM sign in my yard last night. Can we talk about it? I really felt like the Lord lead me to do it. We don't talk about that in this family. Take it elsewhere. Dad, can I talk to you about my decision to vote for Trump this last year? We don't talk about that. That's an embarrassment. It's a heresy. Dad, can I talk to you about the, the thing that seems to be breaking the nation apart? And I feel like the Lord's been addressing it in my own heart. Can we talk about it? You do what you got to do, son, but do it in the dark. Not in this family. We don't talk about it. Now, I know this is a secondary principle. And I'm taking some, some interpretive liberty here. But I feel like this was a word from God for us as a family. There's things we need to talk about. There's idols that need to be torn down. There are heresies. There are injustices. There are lies. There are things that we need to fight for. Heck, we need to fight about. Not in a way that we tear each other apart. That we tear people down that we work through stuff as a family because he's not delivered us out of the kingdom of darkness so that we can simply go about our business in the shadows, afraid of what our brother or sister might say if they found out. Afraid that if I say it, maybe they'll leave. Afraid if I say what I'm really thinking, maybe they'll reject me. Guys, I've just heard the story over and over and over and over Dad, I think I'm gay. Well, let's, let's keep that on the down low. Let's not talk about that because that's too uncomfortable. We've got to talk about the difficult things, the things that somehow make their way into the lives of our families, our nation our idolatrous tendencies. You know, the cool thing is, if you keep reading the story, Gideon's dad, when he found out what his son did, he defended the young man. All the men in the town came together and they said, who tore down our idol? Who burned the altar? And they found out it was Gideon. Gideon's dad stepped right up and he said, hang on, hang on. 
if Baal is who he claims to be, or perhaps who we thought he was, then let him defend himself. I.e., don't you touch my son. Sometimes I wonder if we don't assume a little too much about each other. What if Gideon had had the courage, the courage that he had, to say, Dad, this is what I think we need to do. I think we need to tear down the idol. For seven years, we've been cowering under this idol of Baal. What's he ever done for us? Where did it get us? Let's tear it down, Dad. Let's do it. Who cares what anyone says? Let's me and you, Dad. Let's tear it down. His dad may have stood with him. It's a secondary application, I realize. What a story. What a challenge. There are people in our church family, guys, they want to talk about stuff. Tomorrow's Martin Luther King Jr. uh, Day. It's a day our nation's been commemorating for many decades now. It's an important day. Helps us to reflect on decisions that were made, victories that were won, injustices that were addressed not that long ago. And there are many, many people in our church, in our city, in our nation who who are going to pray, worship, speak, protest, perhaps do very godly things in the name of Jesus in a way that you will not agree with. Perhaps I won't either. But what what will our attitude be as a church family? Will we in so many words without saying a word essentially say, not in this family. You can do it, but I don't want to hear about it. We're not going to talk about it. Take it elsewhere. That's not family. That's not walking in the light. That's not the fellowship that Jesus spilled his blood for that we might enjoy. I have been deeply, deeply challenged this past year. The number of times I've stood up here wanting to to broach certain subjects, to say certain things and stop myself because, ooh, I don't want to go there. I'm afraid so-and-so might hear it and leave. I confess that as sin to you now. We're not called to follow our God in the night under the cloak of darkness. And we're not called to be the kind of family that forces each other to do so. I want you to be able to say whatever you want to say, whatever you need to say. I may not agree with you. I, may, I might even open my Bible and say, hang on, brother. I love you so much. And I am listening. Oh, I am listening. But what you're saying is, this, it's not right. This is what God says is, is true. Now let's figure this out together. Let's figure it out together. Because Jesus didn't deliver us out of darkness so that we can simply get a bit better at keeping up appearances around religious folk. 
He died to set us free from fear, to cleanse us from all sin, to transform us from the inside out, and to place us into a family, a fellowship of brothers and sisters who are just as in process as we are as we spend the rest of our lives working out really, really complex, messy stuff. We do it together. Can I invite our worship team to come up, please? Can we stand together, please? Here you go, Paul. You good? Heavenly Father, I pray that you would Take the words that I've spoken, sift through them, filter them, and have your way. Lord, that when we leave here, that the the words that would be resounding in our hearts would be the words that are from your heart. But I pray that you would convict us, convict every one of us, Lord, in the areas where we have been... um, Yeah, where we have not helped, where we have been the kind of family that's left people feeling like, I need to figure this out someplace else because this doesn't feel like a place where I'm safe or can truly be myself. Lord, I'm sorry for where I've done that, whether purposely or or accidentally. Lord, I pray that you would help us all. Help us to be the kind of brothers and sisters, Lord, who can listen really, really well. And even even when we disagree or perhaps even feel threatened, Lord, help us to remain engaged. Help us to be good uh, listeners, asking good questions. Not afraid to enter into um, ongoing conversations about really complex like personal things. Give us courage, Father, like you gave Gideon courage. Lord, I pray that you would reveal to us the areas in our lives, in our church, in our city, in our nation, where there are idols that need to be torn down. Give us courage, Lord. Open our eyes to see what you see. In Jesus' name, amen. (laughs) 